Welcome to the Trinity Galewood podcast. Here you'll find teachings, sermons, discussions, and additional content all related to what's going on here at Trinity. Trinity Galewood is located at 1701 North Narragansett in Chicago, and we meet Sundays bi-weekly at 1030 a.m. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Trinity Galewood podcast. All right, would you pray with me? Father, we uh, thank you for your word. God, uh, in particular, for the summer, Lord, we thank you for uh, your letter uh, written by Paul to, to the Romans. And God, I pray that as we uh, step into your word, as we engage in it, um, may your spirit fill us up to hear and see you more clearly, the power that you bring, but also the grace that comes as well. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So um, the saying goes that uh, looks can be deceiving. You've heard of this phrase before, right? Looks can be deceiving. Now is not the time to uh, look to the person next to you that you came to church with, right? That would be a little strange. But looks can be deceiving. For, uh, for example here, I have on the screen, uh, anybody know what this is by chance? Yeah, it's a pepper, a habanero pepper, right? And uh, by looking at it, it, it seems as if um, that it's kind of gentle, right? Uh, it, when you like touch it, here, I'll hand it to my wife, right? It's um, smooth, it's kind of cool, right? There's not anything that like much to it. In fact, when you smell it, it smells a little bit sweet, now, if you know something about a habanero pepper, if like you were to open up this pepper and bite into it, you would realize very quickly that this pepper has some power to it. Anybody bitten into a habanero pepper before? All right, Pete, here we go. All right, we have a witness. All right, and uh, even though it feels cool, this thing is hot and it has some power. Because until you engage with this habanero pepper, until you like take a bite out of it, it's only then that you see the power that it possesses. Because looks can be deceiving. And today uh, we're going to start this series that uh, is going to take us through the whole summer for the next like Eight times that we meet in the summertime, we are going to be centered and focused in the book of Romans. Because I believe that looks can be deceiving. I believe that we can know some things about the Bible, maybe some of the stories that came, but until we actually bite into it, until we literally take a chunk out of it, we do see then the power that it possesses and brings. And Romans does this for us here. To spend some time in that book, we need to see the power that it possesses. So I want to invite you uh, over the summertime to uh, this particular thing. I would love for you to bring your Bible along the church. All right? It might seem like a strange request 
for some of us here, but I would love for you to bring your personal Bible to church. I'd love for you to open up that Bible and you can write in a Bible. In fact, if you don't own a Bible, there is a Bible in front of you here or to the side that is your personal copy. We will give it to you. It is even large print, all right? So we are saving your eyes here this morning. You can take it with you. And I want you to open up a Bible, whether it's on your phone or the one in front of you, to Romans chapter 1, the words that we just read, uh, that Jay just read for us. It's page uh, 1746, uh, if you're going to use the Bible that is here in the room. 1746. Now, um... During this series, we're going to be doing uh, kind of a different kind of teaching. Normally, uh, we center our teaching around a theme or a concept of what we are uh, seeking to uh, expose or show or what the Word of God is, is sharing with us today. But during this time, we're going to um, go through this series with the intention of it being more expository, meaning that we're going to kind of dig in deep to the words that Paul is writing here in Romans. Now, um, before we get into the book, I also want you to be aware, everybody got one of these when you came in, correct? Show it to me if you, they're on the chairs, all right? You can grab one of these here. Uh, We could spend like two years on the book of Romans. It's a lot to chew on, but uh, for our purposes, uh, during the summer, you can see some of the themes that we're getting into, Uh, and if you'd like to like read ahead and be an overachiever, Go for it, all right? And, uh, and we'll be there. So, I'm, I'm serious. We're gonna, have, we're gonna stand up and do some jumping jacks here in a second and get you guys awake here this morning, all right? So here we go. Romans chapter one, just like the kids over there, all right? Uh, so Romans chapter one, starting in verse one. It's important to understand first uh, what, or what is it? So uh, the Bible has uh, different genres or books that, are, uh, that compose or make the totality of the Bible. Uh, for example, just like genres of music, there's country music, which nobody should listen to, right? <laughs> and then there's rock music that everybody should listen to. Like the Bible has different kinds of genres. Uh, so there's poetry, Uh, There is historical accounts. We read the book of Acts, the book before us, we're referring to, like tells us what happened and what was going on. But there's also the genre of letters. Uh, And a letter is what we think it is. It's literally somebody wrote it and was writing it to somebody else. And in this case, the book of Romans is uh, a letter written by a guy named Paul to the church in Rome. He wrote it about 55 uh, AD. And just so we get our timeline straight here, Jesus rises from the dead like 30, 33 AD. So this is like 20 years after Jesus has rose from the dead. And he writes this letter to the people of Rome. And it's interesting because Paul has yet to meet the people in Rome. He has not physically met the church in Rome yet. And so he is writing this letter to a group of people that he's heard about, but he's longing to go and see. And he will do that later on in his life, but it is is after he writes this letter. And it's worth noting this, 
that in Romans 16, at the end of his letter, verses 1 and 2, he writes about how he is going to deliver this letter. Now, it's not going to be through like an email or like uh, we're going to have a FaceTime conversation or something like that. No, he's going to send somebody out to go and deliver the letter. The person that he asks to go and deliver the letter is this woman right here. Her name is Phoebe. It's important for us to note that he sends Phoebe out to go and speak this letter uh, to the Roman church. And she goes not only just to deliver that letter, but she goes and she tells them what the letter says. She reads it out loud. And even the people in Rome would have questions about, all right, what was Paul meaning here? She was there to answer. A a, a saint in the faith was sent out by Rome to go and do so. Now, who were the Roman people? First off, The Roman people, this is way before the Vatican was built. The Pope is not in power or anything like that. Rome is a group of Christian people, and there's some interesting dynamics that are happening here. First off, we read in Acts chapter 2 that that's our first encounter with the people of Rome. If you look at this uh, slide up here, uh, this moment in Acts chapter 2 is called Pentecost. The church had a really good day on the day of Pentecost. Thousands of people came to believe on the day of Pentecost. And we read in Acts 2, 9 through 11, that one of the groups of people that was there in Jerusalem was from Rome. Now that's a long journey. And they went back to Rome as converted Christians and started to explain to the people around them the good news of Jesus. There were uh, Jewish Christians, people who were Jewish by culture but believed that Jesus rose from the dead, and there were Gentile Christians in Rome. Gentile is just an umbrella term for everybody who's not Jewish, all right? And so we read that this group of people, there was a conversion, they go to Rome and they start a church. Now the dynamics of that church were really historically interesting. It it was, uh, what was happening in that church during that time is that there are these uh, two groups of people, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And while they believe in the same Lord, they had a lot of arguments about how church should be. Maybe you've experienced this before, all right? Like the color of the carpet shouldn't be red, all right? And if you want to argue that, we can argue that because I would agree right now that the color of this carpet we'd love to change, all right? But, but even deeper than that, like how do we act? Culturally, what's more Christian than the other? So much so that during the time of, uh, that w- or during this time in Rome, uh, the emperor was a guy named Claudius. And Claudius wrote that the division between the Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians was so great that he kicked out the Jewish Christians. He said, you can't live here in Rome anymore. This is written in historical account. But then in 54 AD, Claudius dies, and when the king dies, all the rules change, right? And so the Jewish Christians came back into Rome. Now keep in mind, Paul writes this letter in 55 AD, 
So he's writing into a context of where a group of people got kicked out and now they're back in Rome. There's tension and beef inside of that church. It would be similar to this, all right? Maybe you know this tension and beef that exists. In my house, um, my wife uh, is a diehard Cardinals fan. She grew up in St. Louis. Uh, She bleeds that color as we all do, right? Uh, But there's this tension uh, that exists in our house because my son Malachi loves baseball too and he's like wondering who he can root for. Can he root for the Cubs? And he's come to settle that he can root for the Cubs if they aren't playing the Cardinals and all sorts of things. But it would be like this, all right? It would, it would be like, like imagine you were to come to church here today and I were to say, hey, this disagreement between Cubs and Cardinals fans is just causing too much of a ruckus. Cubs fans, you gotta leave. You can't go to church here because I love my wife more than I love you. All right? And some of you might get very upset by that. You would leave the church and say, hey, I'm gonna go somewhere else, no big deal. Meantime, us Cardinal fans started to gather more Cardinal fan Christians that came to church, right? And then word on the street was that like Pastor Dave left or he died or he was killed by a Cubs fan, whatever it was. And then uh, you would hear that and you'd say, oh, I wanna go back to that church, This is the dynamic that is existing in Rome here today. There's tension. And Paul in his letter is going to address this tension that exists amongst the church and how we live. It's important to note because this is going to influence what he writes. Along with that, Paul's message to the Romans is simply this. The the book could be summarized as the book could be summarized as to experience the gospel and know its glorious freedom. Paul's overall theme here to the Jewish Christians, to the Gentile Christians, to those who don't even believe, his point of the book of Romans is to experience the gospel and know its glorious freedom. The gospel being the good news of Jesus Christ, something that we will dig into here as he explains in Romans chapter 1. But the question may arise, why in the world would you pick Romans? I mean, there's plenty of books that that you could have chosen, but Romans for the summer, that seems like it might be a bit extensive. But the thing about Romans that's interesting is that this book, repeatedly changes the world by changing people. Let's say this again. The book of Romans, as people read it, repeatedly changes the world by changing people. One of those people that were changed by the reading of Romans was this guy, Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther wrote about the book of Romans. He said, it is Truly the purest gospel that every Christian should know it word for word by heart. But also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. Romans changes the world by changing people. 
Another man, St. Augustine, before Luther's time, uh, was a man who grew up in a Christian home. But then he had like his like college years, you know what I'm saying, right? He kind of left the church, um, like was just doing all sorts of stuff he shouldn't have been doing. And he was in a pit. He was in this low moment. And he heard this voice tell him to pick up and read, to pick up and read. And Augustine listened to that voice, picked up a Bible that was in front of him. And he did one of these things. Maybe you've done this before. All right, God, show me something. Boom, right? And he opened his eyes to see that it was open to the book of Romans. And it was from that experience that Augustine wrote these words, that it was a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. The book of Romans repeatedly changes the world by changing people. It's important for us to recognize that while the book is not written to us, a letter by Paul to the Roman Christians, it is not directly for Dave McGinley, uh, it is certainly, while it's not to me, it is for me today. It is for us today. So here we go. Let's dig in. Romans 1, chapter, or Romans 1, verse 1. Paul writes this. And I would invite you, if you want to like write in the Bible or something like that, circle some things, highlight, whatever you want to do, go for it. But here we go. Uh, Paul writes <clears throat> that I, Paul, am a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Uh, two things to circle here right away. Number one, Paul identifies himself as a servant. It's kind of interesting. In fact, the word there in the original language, Romans was written in Greek, is this word, doulos. Say that word, doulos. It's a servant. And for our culture, um, that really what, what Paul is probably addressing here is he says that I am a slave. Now, he's not talking about slavery, the horrific uh, slavery that we've experienced or seen here in America. That's not what he's addressing. He's saying that he is a servant to a master, that he is indebted to Jesus, a servant of Christ Jesus. He writes that he is also an apostle. It would be worthwhile to circle that word, apostle. And the word apostle literally means one who is called, one who is sent, the sent ones. He is sent by God for a mission. Paul says that he's sent to be set apart unlike the world. And Paul's going to show continuously in this letter that his life is going to look very different. He's faithful to a calling. He's faithful to a calling that is above his own wealth, above his own health, above his own acclaim, friends, safety, and so on. But he continues here. It says that he's set apart for the gospel of God. And what's interesting here is that that word gospel, I think we bring our Christian baggage to it, 
we, which is a good thing. We would say that's the good news of Jesus and what he has done for us. But we would also need to recognize that this was a common term that was used during the day when Paul was writing. Uh, in fact, uh, I went and saw the movie Infinity War with my son this last week. Anybody seen that war? The Avengers, Infinity War. All right, good. Some, like, just kind of shamedly put their hand up, right? Um, like, there's this, like, scene. I'm not going to ruin it for you. Um, but there's this scene in Wakanda where there's the big fight and battle, right? And you've seen this before this happens in most, like, of those movies. Like, what, what to gospel is like this. It's, it, it's literally the term that would have been used during the time for kings. When this battle was happening... And when it was done, when the victor had, uh, had won the battle, they were known to then go and gospel. It was a term they would use. That we are now here to gospel, to call out, to announce the good news that we've won. And that's a good thing. And so the winning team would go and gospel. The battle has been won. It's announcement of good news to be believed, not just good advice to be followed. It's news of what has been done. And so Paul here is writing in Romans 1 verse 2 that the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. This gospel that Paul is writing about, this good news that he is announcing, is not a victory that Paul has won himself. But it's a, it's a victory that has come by what has been promised. It's a victory that has come by Jesus. And it is about him. Paul's not like writing to share all of the things about himself. He's sitting here. He's writing to share about the good news that Jesus has brought. And what he has done. He says here in verse 3 regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Three things Paul's pointing out here. Number one, this good news about Jesus is one that he was human, that he lived a life with flesh on. Secondly, that he fulfilled the promises of Scripture. He fulfilled the good news, the, the promises that had been made of what he was called to do. And lastly, he was divine. He rose again from the dead. This was the announcement of his resurrection, the gospel, the good news. The victory has been won. Now, don't get it twisted here. If you think that like um, Jesus was only divine after he rose from the dead, that's heresy. That's a false understanding. Jesus was divine before the beginning of time. That's why when he came on earth, he could calm the storms and do miracles. But also after his resurrection, he was hungry and he ate. And there's this mixture of that he is a fully God yet fully man. This is who Jesus is and what he has come to do. 
His name literally meaning the one who saves. God will save. And so we continue here that that Paul says in verse 5 here, he says, Through him we've received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith in his name's sake. Two things here he points out. Um, one, that this is that we've received grace and apostleship to all the Gentiles, or really we would say all the nations. This good news is not just for the Jews. It's not just for a specific group of people. It is for all the nations. And how glorious is that? And that alone is worth just celebrating. I don't have any Jewish descent here in me. But this good news has been spread throughout the world and continues to spread because it is for all nations. And secondly, that it also comes with obedience. First received by faith and then calls us to go and live in a new way, in a different direction. Verse 8, Paul continues. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. So, so Paul then changes gears and he addresses the people of Rome. And he says, First off, I want to thank you because of your faith. Because your faith is being reported throughout the world. I find this interesting because um, if I were to really check myself, uh, what, what would we want Trinity Galewood to be known by? Would it be known as the church that's on the corner of Narragansett and Wabanzia? Would we be known as the church that has really cool black chairs or good music, or a fun pastor? What would we be known by? And all of those, I think, and I pray, are secondary and not what we are known by. But like Paul was writing to the Romans, that they were known for their faith, known in trusting God above all else. Paul had never met them, but he sees that they are a people who are trusting in God above all else. And that today for us is what we should be encouraged by. I think sometimes as we kind of look around at other churches and we maybe see like, oh man, they've got like 70 kids in their kids ministry and they've got really sweet chairs. And their pastor has a six-pack. Like, all of these things that like we look at and we compare ourselves to the other churches. And we say, well, at least we're not as bad as that church. Like, Paul here is giving a different dynamic. He's saying, no, I'm encouraged by your faith. I'm not discouraged by your faith. Now, there's a place and a time where if somebody is not... Preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that certainly should be called out. 
But there's also a level of that we should be encouraged by the faith that we see going on throughout the world. But then, finally, Paul gets to this section that's important for us here today. He writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of this gospel, this good news that is being announced, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. It's interesting because this word, ashamed, could also be translated as offensive. I am not offended by the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And, and while the good news of Jesus is certainly good, I think it's important for us to recognize as the church that that message of what Jesus has done is and can be offensive. It can be hard to hear. In fact, I want to give you like just like four, I think, ways that um, this is kind of offensive. And I figured by this point in time of the message, I needed to re-engage you, all right? So I'm going to give you four characters that are made up. If your name shows up, it's not because I was thinking of you, all right? So here we go. Uh, first one is this. It removes pride. The gospel can be offensive because it removes pride. It removes pride from, we'll call this guy, prideful Steve. Because the gospel, by telling us that our salvation is free and undeserved, is really insulting. It tells us that we are such spiritual failures that the only way to gain salvation is for it to be a complete gift. This offends moral and religious people who think that their decency gives them an advantage over other less disciplined people. The gospel can be offensive to prideful Steve because we think that, man, I would rather have kind of a little bit of uh, a sense of that I, I deserve this more than the person next to me. And that's not what the gospel is. The gospel can be offensive to, we'll call her, positive Patty. Because it acknowledges evil and sin. The gospel is also really insulting by telling us that Jesus died for us. It tells us that we're so wicked that only the death of the Son of God could save us. This offends the modern cult of self-expression and the popular belief in the innate goodness of humanity. That we could just put a positive spin and twist on everything. And Paul is writing here that I am not ashamed of the gospel, knowing that it can call something evil when it is. Thirdly, the gospel can offend good guy Gary. 
Hi, Gary. <laughs> because the gospel can seem exclusive. I mean, the, by telling us that uh, we're trying to be good and spiritual isn't enough, thereby insists that no good person will be saved. But only those who come to God through Jesus. This offends the modern notion that any nice person anywhere can find God in his own way. And for us in particular in our American culture, we don't like losing our autonomy. We love to self-govern and determine who's in and who's out. And that is not the place for us. The gospel is offensive because that is something that Jesus determines. And that's hard to hear. And lastly... The gospel can be offensive. We'll call this person safe Sharon because it's messy. The gospel is offensive because it's messy. It tells us that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus' suffering and serving. The gospel was brought by Jesus' suffering and serving, not his conquering and destroying. It's counter to what was originally seen and thought, and that following him, Jesus, means to suffer and serve with him. This offends people who want salvation to be an easy life. It also offends people who want their lives to be safe and comfortable. The gospel is offensive because it is messy. And while that certainly can seem like a bit of a downer, I need us to remember here that there is power in the good news of Jesus. That what God is speaking of is deeper, like this pepper here, that there is power that changes the way we look at life. It is something that drives us to, um, to a new perspective, a new way to look, live, and love. It changes how we act. It, it brings power in how we think, in, in our heart for people, in our orientation, and who we interact with, and who we engage with, in our understanding of how everything happens in this world, but the biggest thing the gospel does, what Jesus does by his death and resurrection is that it brings salvation. It brings grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it, which is all of humanity. And that is an incredibly powerful thing that seems to be at surface level rather safe and smooth and not powerful. But it is filled with power when we see that it is for all people. And Paul writes here that that is something that should drive us. It should make us eager to take another bite to experience once again 
the good news of what God has brought. Finally, he says this, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Faith is the thing that that flips this switch. It's not something that we do. It's trust in the one who has done it for us. And that gives us an incredible gift. Next week, yes, literally, next week when we come back to church here because we have service next week, we're gonna be diving in to this passage to understand more of what Paul is talking about in this righteousness that is given to us. But I wanna leave you with this simple analogy here of how good this power is. See, the gospel is as if we are sentenced to a life uh, in prison that ends with us being executed, with death. And the gospel says by what Jesus has done that he not only removes us from that bondage, he brings freedom to us that we don't experience the death that we have earned or deserve. And for some of us, we just stop it right there. But the gospel is even greater because God himself not only removes death from our lives, he gives us something even more that we don't deserve. It's as if he gives us this congressional medal, a Super Bowl ring, an Emmy, whatever it is for you that is the pinnacle of what life would be, God gives that to you through his death and resurrection. And he says, now you are seen as a child of the king. And that's great news. That's great power. And that's great beauty. And for us here today, my hope would be for us that as we dig into more and more of Romans, we would be eager to share that news eager to find great hope and power in that as well. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your resurrection and the life that you bring. And Lord, that comes with life being messy. That comes with stepping out of comfort zones and realizing and seeing how you, Lord, would take on flesh to bring salvation to this world. God, I pray that as we hear once again about how beautiful your news is, but how it can be offensive to our culture, God, I pray that we would be people that would engage in those conversations, that we would Uh, seek them out, that we wouldn't run away or flee, but that we would be people who would desire to see more of you. Lord, I pray that you would grant your spirit upon us for those moments and times. Just as Paul was writing that letter thousands of years ago to the church of Rome, may this be a time that encourages us 
to not be offended nor ashamed of your good news and what you've come to announce. May our eyes be fixed on you, Lord, in that season and in this time as we move forward, knowing and trusting that you know best for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.